It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Good evening, everyone. This is Ellie, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. I am here with my co-host, Lisa. Hello. Hi, Lisa. And we have really excited about our guest tonight. We have Amy. Amy, how do you say your last name? It's Hotvany. I tell it. It's Hotvany. I tell everybody it's Hotvany. Yeah, it's fast. That. And it, it rhymes with hot fanny. That's how I make people remember it. <laughs> I am Perfect. seriously not going to forget that now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have Amy Hotfany here, and we're just really excited that she's on our show tonight. We are going to be talking specifically about her novel, Best Kept Secret. But just a little bit of background on Amy. She graduated with a degree in sociology, only to discover that most sociologists are unemployed. Soon followed a variety of jobs, some of which she loved, like decorating wedding cakes, others which she merely tolerated, like receptionist. In 1998, Amy finally decided to sell her car, quit her job, and take a chance on her true love, writing books. 
Since then, she has authored five novels, and last year, her book, Outside the Lines, which I read, fantastic. I read all your books. They're all fantastic. But Outside <laughs> the Lines was selected by Target's Book Club and Costco as a buyer's pick. And her latest book, which Amy was thoughtful enough to send me an advanced copy of, is called Heart Like Mine. It explores the complicated dynamics within blended families. And I, you know, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I, that book phenomenal. Your writing is phenomenal. And we just will mention that to learn more about Amy and all of her novels, you can go to her website, which is www.amyhotfanny.com. Yeah, don't put hot, don't put hot fanny in there because you're going to get all sorts of websites that you're not going to want to look at. We will not be held responsible for whatever you get if you type that into your browser. Right. But it's A-M-Y-H-A-T-V-A-N-Y.com. So, Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my gosh. It's my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. Amy, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and whatever you would like to talk about with your own experience with alcoholism and recovery? That would be great. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm a mom. I have uh, two gorgeous children of my own. And Scarlett, who just turned 13, and Miles, who is 11. And then I have a bonus daughter, Anna, who uh, will be 15 in a couple of months. And I'm married to my very best friend and second and final husband. And <laughs> never been happier in my life. I started writing when I was really young. Everyone always asks that. They want to know when I started. And I was always a storyteller, which is what my mom used to call lying. But storytelling <laughs> is what I like to call it now. And I get paid to do it. <laughs> Even. Yeah, I wrote my first book when I was seven, and just ever since then, I just fell in love with the written word. I was one of those girls that went to the library and came home with a stack of 12 books every week and you know, read and read and read. Yeah, you know, it was just, I just loved how books made me feel connected to other people, and mm-hmm. like I wasn't alone in my life and in my stories and, and the things that I was experiencing, and so I just, I really fell in love with the written word, and I got to college, and my first college professor told me that I would never be published because my writing was too emotional and too personal. Oh, and my gosh. That I needed to be more intellectual and remove myself from writing. And, of course, I sent that professor my first two novels. It was a thank you note, truly, because, you know, she really fueled my desire to uh, prove her wrong. And because I really believed in my style of writing, and which is to share emotional experiences with other people. And because I really believe that emotions are what connect us. And uh, they cross all boundaries, nationalities continents, universes maybe, you know, you just don't know. But even if you haven't had my experience, you know what it is to be sad or happy or, you know, depressed, whatever it is. And if I can spark that in anyone when I write something, then hopefully I've made them feel a little less alone. So that's kind of my little story. I had my first two books published in my kind of mid-late 20s. And and then I had the dreaded books that didn't sell. (laughs) And this all, this happened actually during kind of a pretty painful divorce. I was going through sort of an ugly separation from my husband, and it was just a really challenging time. And I lived in a fairly small town, and so it was everybody's business. And I didn't have any coping skills at all. I was full of shame and guilt and 
and sad and scared and all of those things. But I was really busy trying to make everybody think that everything was okay on the outside. And I kept doing that until I just couldn't do it anymore. And I stopped sleeping. I had suffered from severe insomnia. And so I had a girlfriend who said, you know, I'll try a glass of wine. <laughs> She's like, have a glass of wine before bed and see how that goes. And I had never been a drinker. I actually didn't like it very much. And so I had that glass of wine and it worked. And so I kept doing it and every day. And then I needed a little more in order to fall asleep. And so that's how it progressed for me with drinking. And within about 18 months, I was drinking two to three bottles of wine a night in order to get that desired effect. I was a single mom, two young toddlers at the time, and really struggling to hold it together. I had to take a pretty low-paying job in order to support them because my, my book didn't sell. I had no money. And I was really just spinning in depression and at the same time just trying to make it look like I had all my stuff together on the outside still to the outside world. I didn't want anyone to think that anything was going wrong, but of course everything was falling apart. And about 18 months after the whole thing started, I just it was right after Thanksgiving weekend and after a particularly bad vendor, I ended up in detox. So, and that was almost eight years ago. So wow. I'll be celebrating now. eight years in November. So there you go. Congratulations. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. awesome. That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, Amy, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I think so many people can relate to this novel, Best Kept Secret. I know for me, it was a huge, huge, uh, it was wonderful for me to read at the time that I read it. I related to everything. Best Kept Secret is really, it's about one woman's mistake that she just can't undo. And I can just go on forever about how many ways I can relate to it. But I really want to know first, what, what inspired you to actually to write the novel because I know it took courage, especially because even though it wasn't it was a novel, it was still coming from somewhere inside of your experiences. Yeah, what I like to tell people is that you know the plot is fictional, but mm-hmm. all of all of the emotions are rooted in my own as a woman who kind of descended into this dark, horrible place of drinking and loneliness and depression. It really, it's not a, that depressing of a book. <laughs> Tell people that there's like there's a lot of hope with this book. There is um, hope, but I yeah, uh, there's yeah, a lot of hope, yeah. but it's I also wanted, very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted very you know, you know, honestly, the first part, the first version of the book didn't have sort of the descent in it because I was scared to go there. I was only I think it was about three years sober when I decided to to write the book. You know, part of me, I needed to make sense of everything I had gone through. Because before that, before my divorce and, and, you know, alcohol sort of took over my life, my life was pretty great. I had had a lot of success. You know, I had I always like to tell people I had two books and two babies before I turned 30. And, you know, it was, it was, I was a straight A student. I was all those things. And so when this thing came at me and blindsided me and just took me down, I, I couldn't reconcile that. I didn't understand how someone who had been, you know, successful and happy in my life for the most part could have something so horrible take over and really just annihilate everything I knew to be true about myself. And I really had to start over from scratch and figuring out who I was and what I wanted in my life and what was important to me. And the way I've always 
sorted things out is to write about them. And, you know, I got the idea for a woman struggling to come to terms with her alcoholism during a custody dispute for her child. And, you know, because what other reason more than could a woman have to get sober than to be there for her child? And, you know, but I also really, I just, I needed to make sense of what had happened. That's what inspired me to do it. But, you know, it, it took a long time. It took me almost three years. Well, yeah, almost three years to get to the final product of the book because it was, it was painful to go back to those darker places and visit some of those emotions that I lived, as you all know. <laughs> They're not entirely pleasant. <laughs> One of the things that I was thinking about was the challenges of actually writing a novel that, you know, factually, obviously, it's a fictional novel, but that the feelings are so similar to your own, and I think that's what really makes the novel resonate with so many women who have been through similar experiences or are going through similar experiences, because so much of what Cadence experiences, when I'm describing Best Kept Secret to people, I I usually say it's the most accurate depiction of what it felt like to send into alcoholism that I've ever read. I mean, I really really, Mm -hmm. believe just to be there real time and be privy to her thought processes, her rationalizations, her guilt, and her shame. I mean, it's more than just what it was like for someone like me in early recovery who had to sort of sit down and take a hard look at my behaviors and really think about them sort of in the confines of my own private life, but then to actually have to write about them like they're happening. You know, I mean, that. can you describe a little bit about being able, the sort of creative challenges around being able to go there but then kind of keep, Cadence's character separate from your own, with, if that question makes sense. I mean, that, that yeah, no, I, a huge challenge. It was challenging, but I think that that's, you know, my genre has always been fiction, so that's where I'm most comfortable kind of maneuvering around in. And I think I've said this to you before, Ellie, you know, the, one of the reasons that I chose, you know, to write the fiction was instead of a memoir, because I want to, I look at my experience as a grain of sand, and I want to write about the beach. Yeah. You know, I, I really want, you know, my individual story wasn't as compelling to me as Cadence's story because, and on that level, that's what made it easier for me to kind of go to those places because I really made it her experience. I really developed Cadence as a whole different person than me. You know, I don't have her story. I, you know, my, my ex-husband didn't have a controlling mother, you know, there's all sorts of differences in the stories. And so from the very beginning, I made a very kind of clear border between who Cadence was and who I am and what my story is and what her story is, you know, but again, you know, I really, I'm a generally empathetic person. My sister is uh, severely handicapped. She has a degenerative brain disease called Rett syndrome. And so from a very young age, you know, I grew up with her in my household. She lived at home with us and she can't speak and she can't you know, communicate her feelings at all. And, but you can see it in her, you know, and I became very good at reading emotions and, and feeling what other people feel because I had to kind of be there for my sister in order to do that. And, you know, that's kind of what I do with my characters. I just move, I I see what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And, you know, in the terms of cadence, of course, it, it seeds from my own experiences. So actually it was almost easier (laughs) because I'm not totally making it up. It's, you know, this is, these are things I felt. I did feel extraordinary guilt and extraordinary shame and, and, and being baffled. I think that was the sense that I really wanted to capture. And it was important for me 
to kind of be that voice of a mother who is <clears throat> struggling with this issue and be like, why, how, why can't I get a handle on this? You know, that sense of, you know, I'm an accomplished woman. I'm smart. I'm professional. I'm all these things, and yet I can't stop drinking. What the hell is wrong with me? It's such an ugly spiral, and yet you're, you know, three-quarters of the way down usually before you realize where you are and that you need to stop. And by then, you're like, how the hell did I get here? Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Looking at some of the questions that came up before the show that people submitted after reading the novel, and one of them talked about codependency. And she said, I relate to how Cadence shapeshifts to accommodate her husband. Can you talk a little about codependency among alcoholic women? I mean, and even among women in general and the sort of tendency we have for people-pleasing and shape-shifting and certainly how that feeds into, at least for me in my own alcoholism, that I always used to think of the alcohol as kind of the mortar that held all of my different characters together. I'd shapeshift to please anybody, and the alcohol sort of helped keep me in character because I didn't really know who I was or what I wanted. And I think you read about that really well with Cadence, you know, certainly with her controlling husband and how she used alcohol to sort of anesthetize her anger or resentment towards that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, you know, yeah, it is a big topic. We could have a whole other show on that. It's, you know, I think we are raised as women to be very concerned with what other people think about our behavior, how we look, how we, you know, are we cute enough? Are we pretty enough? Are we respectful enough? Are we being funny and sweet? And, you know, all those things, making other people happy. That's a really big message that I think girls get. You're not supposed to make anyone unhappy. And so from a very young age, I was that way. I absolutely was a shapeshifter. That was something I actually came up with when I was in high school. I remember feeling like a shapeshifter because I would, you know, kind of morph into whatever someone needed from me. And, I, and it became, I mean, it was natural to me as best. You know, you don't even realize you're doing it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in the long run, it just, it's what contributed to my emotional defense because I spent so much time, you know, building this outside sort of image for everyone to see of this perfect marriage that I had with two kids and books that got published and, oh my, I'm so happy and good. And inside I was just crumbling and... You know, but I still wanted everyone to think well of me. And, you know, the hardest concept for me in recovery has been that what other people think of me is none of my business. I mean, truly. And especially as a writer, I put myself out there for criticism all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And people are mean. (laughs) (laughs) They can be really mean about, you know, this thing that I've created. And, you know, the way that I get through that on a professional level is, I didn't write this book for that person. 
you know, if somebody reads something I, I write and it doesn't connect mm-hmm. with them, I can just, I realize that person wasn't either ready to hear that or they didn't need to hear it. It's not something that applied to them in their life. And so they felt the need to say that and find something negative. And that's okay. You know, that's their place. And, you know, codependency is, I've come a long way to be able to say that out loud without crying when I talk about negative, <laughs> negative yeah, reviews. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, not that um, it comes overnight. I can, I imagine that's something that, yeah. And I think that, you know, in terms of relationships and in the book, especially with Cadence and her ex husband, you know, you, you can't have a codependent relationship if one person refuses to take the bait. You know, that's fine. One person yeah. stops dancing, there can't be a dance, you know. And I have learned in a really big way in my own personal life, you know. This is a big lesson for me is when somebody is coming at you and you are, you know, feel yourself being sucked into that emotional pattern that's really unhealthy for you and and it you can just oh God, can you feel it in your gut when that happens? I feel it in my gut. I'm just like, yeah. oh, this is not the person I wanna be and you know, I just have to stop responding and it refuse to engage, back away, set a boundary, only respond to the facts. You know, those kind of things versus, mm-hmm. you know, engaging in all that judgmental behavior. But when you're in the midst of it and and you have no coping skills whatsoever, I mean, it's yeah. just so debilitating because you just, I don't know, I felt defeated, you know. I felt like no matter what I did for this particular person in my life that I couldn't live up to the standard that they wanted me to be at. And so I kept trying harder and harder and failing exactly. harder and harder and... You know, it's such a lonely place, isn't it? It's so lonely. Mm-hmm. And it's... It really free. is. It's so freeing to not give a shit anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. You know, it really is. Like, yeah. To be like, this is who I am, and I'm flawed, and I made huge mistakes, but I stood up, and I learned from them, and I changed my life. And I'm proud of that. I have a question, and I think uh, several other people have submitted the same question. I know Betsy did, and... She talks about how in Chapter 7, when Cadence visits her doctor, she she doesn't speak about her drinking and says so she focuses on her anxiety and her insomnia, and she justifies it by thinking, okay, if I get my anxiety in check, I can sleep, and then there will be no reason for me to drink. Well, I did the same thing for years. I wanted to be diagnosed with anything and everything but alcoholism. So I would lie by omission and just simply not mention the fact that I was drinking copious amounts of wine and um, I would say I have horrible anxiety or I I suffer from depression, that I would just just conveniently leave out the part about the alcohol. And I think so many people do that. And I've seen so many people say that they've worked psychologists and therapists and doctors and they wanted the problem to be anything that they're drinking. And it seems like just based on Cadence's um, character, you you also, did you experience the same thing personally? I've been in this talk therapy and, you know, I, I actually kind of fancied myself someone who sort of knew herself emotionally and mentally pretty well because I had been into therapy and, you know, I had struggled, you know, kind of in and out of depressive episodes here and there. And I had never been medicated, but I, I just kept thinking, you know, I honestly didn't, I didn't, I don't know what this is, alcoholic amnesia while it's happening or whatever it is, but I, I never made the connection that how screwed up things in my life were was connected to Mm -hmm. my drinking. I just kept thinking 
if I just got the right diagnosis, if the doctor mm-hmm. could give me something that would... For my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would stop being so, you know, anxious all the time. And it just, I just, I just had to think, I was like, I had all these rules and being, trying to figure out what it was and telling my doctor, you know, I just can't sleep and my head spins and my, my thoughts just go and go and go. It's like squirrels on crack in my head constantly. <laughs> and... Yep. You know, can you give me something to calm me down? And, you know, and, and I never, it actually never crossed my mind to tell them, at least not initially, you know, that I was drinking what I was drinking. Mm-hmm. Because I just thought, because I had never, you know, drank heavily before. I didn't get it. I was just thinking, well, I would joke, I'd say I'm having my early 20s and my early 30s because mm-hmm. I never drank in my early 20s. And it was just this crazy and I wanted it to be something else because I think that, right. and I think it's misdiagnosed a lot because of that reason. We get a lot, it's underdiagnosed in our society because we get women who go in, you know, I'm just so depressed and alcohol is a depressant. Duh. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. others find the message of recovery we champion on the bubble hour plus get access to the entire backlist ad free by joining us on patreon patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast tiny bubbles become a bubble hour patron today at patreon.com slash the bubble hour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope You know, there's also the added challenge that not all doctors are, you know, well-versed in addiction, you know, and there is some judgment even in the medical community. There is a judgment and there is a stigma from some doctors. So I had to find a doctor who really understood what addiction was and so I could feel safe. But, you know, when I first got so I mean, I just went into detox and so all these doctors were really well-versed and were able to talk to me about what was going on with me physically and why things were happening the way they were happening. And so I wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. It was such a relief to find right. that I wasn't a total nut job. I mean, I really thought I was losing my mind. What advice would you give to women who are listening tonight and who might think they have a problem with drinking? Because as Lisa mentioned, you know, she came, talked to her therapist about it or a doctor. I think it's especially hard if you're kind of sort of in denial about your drinking. I mean, I identify with what you said about not really being able to connect the dots between all the things yeah. that were happening to me, both physically and mentally, and my drinking, because I, I actually really believe that it was what was holding me together. I mean, I thought this is kind of the last thing I have that is just for me that really keeps me from, it's between me and going crazy is what I thought. Mm-hmm. And I did the same rigmarole with talking to doctors about anxiety and postpartum depression and all kinds of things. And they would ask me how much I drank and I consciously reduce the number a little bit, but I thought of it kind of like I used to have about my weight, you know, shave a little off, but it's not that. 
I thought of it shaving off a couple pounds. It was probably 20, and I was shaving off a couple drinks, and it was probably 20. But, you know, I, I just yeah. didn't really see it. But when you start to get those niggling doubts and you think, wow, you know, I think I really might be drinking too much, what, what avenues do you recommend for people who might be thinking that they would like to seek some help? Well, the first thing I always say to anyone is, you know, people who don't, have a problem with alcohol, don't lay in bed at night wondering if they have a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you're wondering, then most likely you've got something going on. It doesn't mess, you don't have to call yourself an alcoholic. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a label person. I, I think that, you know, that a lot of times there are heavy drinkers who identify early and, and realize that, you know, this was going down the wrong path and they're able to, you know, maybe get some help. And, you know, everybody's path to recovery is different. And so I don't, and I don't advocate any one path. You know, all I know for myself is that I had someone who was in recovery who sort of showed up in my life. And I really believe now that, that it was for a reason. And so if, if you know someone in recovery, you can just have a conversation with them and talk to them about what you're going through, you know, if you feel safe. And... You know, the the biggest thing for me was learning that I wasn't going to be judged and I wasn't going to be, you know, looked down upon. This person in my life was able to say, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about and I'm so sorry you're struggling and I'm here to help you if you want it. And that was such a huge relief to that I got that response once I got up the courage and it took a long time for me to get up that courage. Yeah. I think I have a problem. And, uh, you know, it, it it depends, you know, next steps completely depend for each individual person on where they are and, and what they want for themselves. But getting educated, I think, is probably one of the most important things you can do. Mm-hmm. Talking to somebody in recovery, getting online, joining the chat rooms, you know, the three brigade, all of those things where you can just learn. You don't have to interact. You don't have to necessarily identify. You just have to listen and learn about who these people are and what we've been through, you know, that it's not... I love the statement that, you know, it's not a drinking, I didn't have a drinking problem, I had a thinking problem, you know, and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the alcohol is literally just a symptom, and, you know, once that the alcohol was gone, I had to start treating how I think about life and how I approach life, and, you know, it's just been a miracle how my life has changed, just in more ways than I can possibly say. I just can't even, I can't even believe it some days how happy I am. Hey friends, this conversation does continue, but that's it for the free version of this episode. You can find links for Amy Hatfanny's information in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear the duration of this conversation, which plays for a full hour, you can join us on Patreon where we have full uninterrupted episodes there, commercial free for our members. And you will be supporting the show and helping other people receive these free episodes as well. So that's all for this time. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. Just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.